Are you ready for some nosy bitches? Because this is about to get explicit. Hey, bitches. Hey, friends. Hey, Carla. Michael. How you doing, girl? I am doing really good. Actually, today has been a little stressful, but in general, I'm doing very well. How are you doing? I'm so relaxed. (laughs) (laughs) So for our listeners, I left like my corporate America job. I I don't, I know, I know. (laughs) I don't know all the things that are next. There are several things like in the mix and basically like I just designed for myself by saving up voraciously. It's like some time to just not have to work. And so I'm doing lots of yard work right now. I went to beach the other day just on a whim and I spent all day out there. I had a couple bushwhackers and just walked along the beach and it was beautiful. I want you to know that Michael's texting me while I'm at work. <laughs> I know. And probably my 85th meeting for the day. I, I know. To remind me that he's at the beach. Um, but no, I'm very happy for you. You need to live your best life. And really what this computes to me is this is how we make it big and famous in podcasting. I mean. One of us had to sacrifice. I think so. Is that how that works? Yeah. I mean, I feel like some of this is up to our listeners. So if you would like us to be big and be able to do this full time and give you more nosy shenanigans, then keep listening. Tell a friend. Yeah. Be part of our pyramid scheme. This is how you solve this problem for us. Listen, if you can just tell one person who tells one person, then we've just earned seven more cents. We hit a big milestone, Carla. We did. We did. Holy, like. 5,000 listens. And we're we're a couple hundred past it now. Say, we're like 5,300 at this point yeah. now. Like, so holy shit. Really exciting. We hinted at this, but like your other hostess got a promotion during yes. her day job. How are you liking the new gig? I do. I like it a lot. It's good. Change is always difficult. Yeah. Sometimes it is what you need. It's been refreshing yeah also like exciting also exciting is the very relevant case that we have for this week's episode or this bi-weekly episode yeah for this episode (laughs) yeah i was gonna say we might maybe we'll try to start we're gonna start trying to to do a little bit more regular i won't promise every week yet but we're gonna start working toward that again so this case i know it's been everywhere lately so it's the murdoch case and i want to do it in two episodes so First episode, there are so many crimes involved. Like, I'm not sure that we could do a mob boss episode and it have <laughs> less crimes. Like, these are the mob bosses Hashtag of, goals, yeah, <laughs> of South Carolina. And so there's so much leading up to Maggie and Paul, so the son and the wife of Alec Murdoch yeah. dying, that I feel like we need to spend a whole episode talking about some of the things because it does matter and it plays into why the jury felt like he was guilty. And we can say he killed them because a jury found him guilty of that. That's and right. until he they appeal it, yeah, until they appeal it out, we will consider him guilty as charged. We can go into some of that piece of it about leading us up to it. And then the next episode, we will talk about what happened to Paul and Maggie that night, and really why Alec was convicted. And so a couple of things. It is It does look like Alex, but it is pronounced Alec with a K at the end. And it's not Murdoch. It's Murdoch. It's not Carla's weird pronunciation because, I mean, that's a Just real thing Just know that like, we researched yeah. this. Yeah, this and... is a real thing. If you don't know anything about this case, it's because you have been trying not to. That's right. There is a Netflix documentary that just came out not that long ago. It's fabulous. HBO did one. There is another podcast from 
let me make sure I get it right, an investigative journalist, Mandy. Um, she has about 100 episodes. <laughs> She'll let you know. Yeah, oh, she will be very clear. And she really was this I'm journalist. Not a yeah, they, yeah, she'll tell you a few times. And she really is the one. You know, Carlo, those podcasters are trash. No, yeah. We're just <laughs> Sorry, ste- continue, stealing continue. all their work. That's right. She was there and really deep dives into all the things going on and was beat on the ground there in South Carolina. Okay. In between um, coming up to the trial and then a little bit afterwards. Of course, I listened to the prosecutors do. They've done, I think, so far like seven love episodes. You, the prosecutors. Oh, just love them. It's been everywhere. Of course, I listened to the trial. So. Those are definitely some sources. If you want to deep dive into it, that one podcast is like 100 episodes yeah. onto it. So, um, all right. Are you ready to get started? I'm sober. This one's going to be super juicy. I cannot wait to hear your take on it. Let's dive in. All right. First, we're going to talk about family. Then we're going to talk about the murder of Stephen Smith and then the death of Gloria Steinfeld. And then we're going to go over the death of Mallory Beach. And then... This is just episode one. (laughs) Like I can't. Oh my god! In the next one, we'll talk about the murder of Paul and Maggie and the trial. Okay. So first, let's start with the family. So for three generations, the Murdochs have sat as the solicitor for that area of South Carolina called Hampton County. And I had no idea what a solicitor was. I was just about to ask you, what does that mean in layman's terms? So what it is is it's an elected official in the prosecution's office. So. That means that it's almost like the head of the prosecution's office. Okay. It's important to understand, like, this family has been in control of who gets punished and how harshly for the last hundred years. They call this area of South Carolina almost like a hell trap. And so what it means is that you can get punished very harshly for things like drugs, especially if you're an outsider. For that area since 1906 that family has been in charge of the prosecution office the other thing and this really comes into play when it comes to the trial but even though the family isn't directly involved right now into the prosecution's office they're friends of the people who are in the prosecution 100 guaranteed they know people with power yeah so and it's a small area like this is not you know, Charleston. This is not a big area. This is a very small town. We're in South Carolina. Are we it's again? called Hampton County. Population, Hampton County, South Carolina. 18,000. So relatively, and that was in 2021. Like. So that's. It's mid-sized. Yeah, right? I was going to say like, that's, that's Phil's pretty small. It, oh, very. Like, so like Pensacola Metro is. Like 350,000. Yeah, I was going to say. Pensacola city limits is something like 60,000. So this is like one quarter of the population of Pensacola city. It's a smaller situation. Yeah, and so South. It's big compared to where I grew up, but. Yeah, that's that's fair. (laughs) South Carolina too, especially as we talk about some of the other things. Remembering that where it's at is right on the water. In this family is on top of being a solicitor. They also had a shared law firm that was established in 1901 because the solicitor's office is really just a part-time position. You actually don't have to hold it full-time because there's just not – it's too small of an area. Yeah. Yeah. And so they opened this law firm over 100 years ago. In this family of four, there's Alec, Maggie, Buster, and Paul. So Maggie was born Margaret Kennedy Brandstetter. She graduated from the University of South Carolina – People who knew her growing up 
said that she was a good old Southern girl who was taught Jesus, getting married, having babies were the keys to a successful life. Right? Like, oh, su- Southern life at its finest. Right. Like in the prime of like Americana. Yeah. Like 100%. Aren't, aren't we all taught that? Right? I, <laughs> Jesus, pregnant in the kitchen. And that's all you need to make a successful life. So... And, and you know what? I'm not hating on it because there's a part of me that's that's kind of jealous of it. I was going to say, there's like, like a part of me, I like at one time want to poo-poo it. And then there's another part of me, but that sounds wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> she met Alec in college and in August 14th of 1993, they got married. She was a full-time homemaker and being a mom was her dream. There's some things that get said about Maggie throughout right before her murder especially around some of the boat accident stuff. But you can tell that like she really loved her kids and maybe maybe loved and wanted to protect them almost a little too much. Yeah. We're all human, so we all come with our own flaws. And, you know, Maggie, I'm sure, was not perfect, but she was living her dream, really, being a mom to two boys. If that is your full-time gig, and it doesn't seem like an unreasonable thing for you to lean into it that hard. Yeah. That is, that's your deal in life. This is what I want to do. They say that, that she was very down to earth and that she could have this big humor. Alex Murdoch was born June 17th, 1968 in Hampton County. He went to the University of South Carolina like his family before him. He went to school to be a lawyer and would eventually work at the family law firm. He would also act as a part-time prosecutor for that county. So as he wasn't the solicitor, but he worked in the prosecution's office. So again, like with the solicitors, Buster Murdoch is one of the sons of Maggie and Alec, and he would also follow in the family legacy and go to law school. So at one point during his time at the University of South Carolina, he would be expelled for plagiarism. I want to point out, though, like, this is in 2021. This is after the death of his mom and his brother. This is after a lot of things that have happened in his family. He seems Mm -hmm. like a very quiet boy for the most part. I think for the most part as an adult, very quiet, very reserved. And I know that plagiarism is big deal, but he's also a college kid. And I mean, I know that probably most college kids have cheated off a paper and just didn't. So it almost feels like the college was really looking for some reason to get him out. I will neither confirm nor deny that I ever cheated in high school and or college. Right. I will also neither confirm nor deny whether or not I was proud of having done that. (laughs) But to your point, like, I do think that that's not such an abnormal thing. Like, it, it feels like because big family... That's why there's so much scrutiny and kind of a magnifying glass put on this. uh, I think it's 100% that. So, like, I know that he got in trouble for that. And I think a lot of people will say, like, oh, he's not not far from the others. And that may or may not be true. I don't know him personally. I can't account for whether or not he's a good person. But also, like, you know, he's went through a lot of shit over the last few years. So I'm going to give him a pass as far as plagiarism at South Carolina. I mean, in the... In the scheme of things, one can do badly on this planet. Yeah. It's fairly mild. So, like I said, out of the brothers, he's known as the more quiet and more well-behaved brother. I will say, like, the other brother's kind of wild, so I'm not sure what kind of leveler that really is. (laughs) Fair. So, Paul Murdoch was the youngest son of Alex and Maggie. He was often referred to as the party kid who got away with everything. Here's a quote from his obituary. And it Mm. says, Paul grew up with a love for the outdoors and particularly enjoyed hunting at their lodge in Moselle, 
with his father, Alec, and brother Buster. He was a junior at the University of South Carolina, where he was often found cheering on Gamecocks with his friends and family. Paul never met a stranger and had an abundance of friends. He was always eager to lend a helping hand to anyone in need. No one was more loving and genuine than Paul, and because of this, his personality was one of a kind. You can definitely tell that this was written by someone who truly loved Paul, watched him grow up. Probably a little bit of storytelling because Paul was a 19-year-old kid. I think he's actually 21 when he passed, but he was a a rough and tumbly teenager. It's also important to know, like, the Murdochs were really involved in hunting. So they raised hunting dogs, and they were not pets. They were hunting dogs. They kept them in big cages outside, you know, very humanely, but outside of the property. And the property that they would hunt on is called Moselle. They also had a river house and a few different properties. So they had some money. They really, and they had like long historical money. They are pretty wealthy. And I think the kids are really, they're used to four wheeling and riding around on their boats and hunting. Okay. Other important people. There is Randolph Murdoch III. This was the father and grandfather of the current Murdoch family. He was a powerhouse, still alive at the time. He was a solicitor for most of his adult life for that county. And so very, very powerful and very respected. He was definitely the problem solver of the family. Okay. Also important to know is Duffy Stone, who is the current prosecutor and longtime friend of Alec Murdoch. And then there's John Marvin and Randy Murdoch. And those are the uncles of the two boys and the brother of Alec Murdoch. And so we'll go over this again in the next episode because these people will play reoccurring pieces through all of it. Now we have introduced the family, have some background on some of the players. Yeah. I want to talk about the first death that surrounds the the Murdoch name. And the question before we dive into this, because obviously this is a very famous case now. When some of this was happening earlier on, Was there a spotlight on the family yet? Or at this point, this is all like, we're just looking back on it and starting to connect some of these pieces. Yeah. So honestly, the pivotal moment is the boat crash that we'll talk about. And then after that, the thing that really kind of brought all of this was then the murder of Maggie and Paul. And in that, realized that when you have a family that's in so much power and control And they've been able to get away with things or manipulate things. Then you start looking at, okay, what else could they be involved? And that's where some of these other things started to come together. Yeah. And then it's now like hypervigilance around these things. Okay. The first death that we should talk about is Stephen Smith. Stephen was a bright young man who had a very bright future ahead of him. His family and friends would describe him as vibrant. And at the time he was in nursing school. So Stephen Smith went to school with Buster Murdoch. Okay, I was about to say, how does that attach to... So that's how how they knew each other, right? So there's a lot of rumors about what happened to Stephen Smith and how it relates to the Murdoch family. But let me tell you about how suspicious his murder was and the investigation afterwards. And there's actually stuff that... 
as of this week on this case. Oh, so wow. this this case is late and breaking, and we're only going to hear more and more stuff about it. Early morning of July 8th of 2015, a motorist driving by calls 911 and says there is a body in the middle of the road. And it's on Sandy Run Road in Hampton County. And at the time, they obviously did not know that the person was deceased. I think they thought that they were playing a joke. The officers arrive and they find that Stephen Smith is deceased from a blunt force trauma to the head. Then what appears to be placed in the middle of the road, right? Because it is weird to be in the middle of the road. Immediately, they start looking around the body and they don't see things that you would see from like a car accident or a hit and run, which is what you would imagine. Right. So there's no vehicle debris. There's no skid marks. There's no injuries even consistent with being hit by a car. Even if the car was moving slowly, you're still going to have an impact to have a, you know, 2,500 pound machine hit you at 35 miles an hour. I mean, yes. And these are, you know, country roads. So I'm sure the speed limit is much faster than that. Speed limits are just suggestions anyway. Right. Yeah. And I was going to say it's in the middle of the night. That's right. Not only that, the other thing that was very, very suspicious, and I obviously have not dealt with a lot of like car accident or hit and runs, but Stephen's shoes were loosely tied and were still on his feet. No. And so anyone- No. Yeah. Anyone (laughs) who's ever dealt or seen or knows anything about that, that is almost never, ever the case. When they say like, it knocked him out of his shoes, like that's a real thing almost never have their shoes on. And so the police are just really suspicious about what is going on here. Which good on them. Yes. No drag marks either. There's no glass. There's no residue. There's literally no evidence about a car had been there and created, and and that's why he was dead. So there's no understandable reason why this scene would look like that. If it were a car accident, you know, hit and run, Stephen's car is is found around three miles away, and the gas tank is open, and the gas cap is hanging out. And to them, they're like, the prosecutors joke, they're like, it couldn't be more set up if there wasn't a sign literally on the door, like, walked away for gas. It definitely seems like a setup. They were trying to make it look as though. Right. Oh, I've run out of my gas. I'm going to undo the cap and leave it out, and then I'm going to start walking down the road Carly, in what world would be that be how you check to see if your gas is empty right the other thing is, is he just not trusting the gauge on his car yeah i think we've talked about in a couple episodes ago that i like to live life on the edge and <laughs> i generally you're a very lady running late. edge of glory yeah right. i'm generally running late i'm generally running on like 13 miles off the gas tank so <laughs> i have ran off gas a few times in my life I've never, like, left my car and had to walk to the gas station because, for the most part, as an adult, there were cell phones around and I could call somebody for help. But I don't know that, like, this would be a good tactic. The other thing is his wallet was in the car. So if he was walking down... To get gas? How's he going to buy it? Right. The other thing is there are such things like cell phones that exist in the world. Why would you not pick up the phone? This is not 19... 70s. Call AAA. Right. Call USAA. Like yeah. whoever you have as your like roadside assistance people. Call your dad because that, that's what I do. So, <laughs> yes. Like you would be calling someone. You wouldn't be leaving your wallet in your car. 
No. And then leaving your gas tank like open, walking away. Yeah. Oh, okay. Whatever, whoever, and whatever happened tried to make it look a certain way. Correct. But the evidence just does not lead that way. This is what is so just weird about this case: is they test the car. The batteries fully function, but they notated like the car would not start. So something had happened to the car at some point. I mean, that could be somebody opening the hood and pulling a cord and it just not be the battery. So, and it is said that like Stephen wasn't someone who ran out of gas. So if it's me who's on the side of the road and you find dad and it looks like my car is empty of gas, no one is going to even question that. But if like you can be or, like- Or Thomas especially. Like yeah. For sure he's one of those. My husband too. And- he never lets get below a quarter. Like, Thank it's you. like, go. Yeah. my Anytime, like, when my car gets at 50, my husband starts to, like, panic about it. He's like, are we getting gas? Like, we haven't even thinking about like, it. We have 50 miles. Yeah. Thank like, you. We could go to Louisiana. That's right. <laughs> like, we don't need to worry about it until we get to, like, 10. The sheriff and highway patrol would notate that everything appeared to them as a homicide, and they notated it. During the autopsy, the pathologist determines that this was a hit and run and not a homicide. And so the detectives, and I say detectives, but these are state highway patrol, which is different than like sure. crime detectives. And they're like, hey, why would you rule this a hit and run? And she's like, and I guess it became like an argument between the pathologist and the detectives or between the highway patrol because they're like, this is clearly a homicide. And she's like, well, that's for you to figure out. And so it was this rude interaction. But that's kind of like starts out the really oddities around the Stephen Smith is that one person is saying, oh, this is a hit and run. But there's literally no evidence of a hit and run. And the body doesn't even appear to be a hit and run. So there's a lot of arguments going back and forth about this. Sandy Smith, Stephen's mother, is adamant that this is not an accident that someone had hurt her son. And she remains, and rem to this day, a champion for her son and never lets his murder go. Like, she continues to advocate and speak out for him. And so Stephen was an out gay man in a very small southern town. And this comes with its own problems and complications. Sure does. And so, like, looking at his cell phone, there are questions about certain text messages that he shared with a man who was a lot older that had come to visit him in a gated community. And Stephen had been at his house like the day or so before. Part of this is the secretism that Stephen kept because he felt like he couldn't have, even though that he was out and open, that he couldn't have out and open relationships. And that there probably was not a lot of other gay men for him to date. And so a lot of his relationships were more in secret. And there is kind of uncovering some of that. And then if you're looking at his death originally as a hit and run and not a homicide, what did you lose as part of this, like within the time frame? So his relation then to Buster, right? What, were there rumors that they were engaged together that like maybe they had more than a friendship? Yeah. So there are rumors now about like maybe Buster and Steven were in a secret relationship at one point in time. But they really are rumors because there's no, at, at least from what we can, from what we know, that there's really no proof to that. There's no like text messages that they find and they never bring Buster in and actually interrogate him or even question him on the murders. Now, I will say, I don't know 
that this is the best investigation, but I do think that there have been some steps forward in it. But still to this day, Buster has never been brought in. It shouldn't matter anyway, but I'm just curious, like I'm trying to kind of uncover as we dive into this series of crimes. Right. What's some possible motive here for this, right? And so it's like, was this a family pride thing where there was this rumor of your son being in a gay relationship that wouldn't stand for the family name? I don't know. I'm just trying to kind of like so search for. Here's. Yeah. Here's where it kind of crosses over. Smith's father allegedly got a call from Randy Murdoch. Remember I mentioned him. That is the uncle of the two boys and the brother of Alex Murdoch. And remember, they're all lawyers. So he gets a call from the uncle who says, hey, I'll represent you for free in a wrongful death lawsuit. The father just feels like that's really suspicious. Like, why would he be calling me? Why is he trying to do this? So currently, Randy Murdoch denies ever calling the Smith family. Well, Stephen's father has now passed away. But his sister, who was there, didn't call, swears like, yes, Randy Murdoch called us. We talked about it. It was like a well-known thing. So there's there's where the rumor starts to feel suspicious. Okay. Here's what's weird about Stephen Smith is the people who originally investigate this are Highway Patrol. They're not true homicide detectives. And that and is that because it's a hit and run? Like it's that's something that's under their jurisdiction to investigate. Yeah, I'm putting I, air quotes because I don't know if that's true. Or yeah, like... I don't know why it is that they're taking it into their hands. And it's maybe because the other office is not taking them serious because the pathologist is saying this is a hit and run. It's not a homicide. But they feel very strongly that it is. There's definitely some contention between the two offices. And you can tell that this investigation did not start off. Like, Highway Patrol, while they're very good at their job, unless they're skilled at, you know, talking to witnesses and things like that. I've listened to some of the recordings. And you can tell that they're lacking in some of that area. So they begin to question Stephen's friends, Stephen's family members. And Buster's name comes up a few times about, like, Oh, he was out partying. Maybe he maybe he hit him in a hit and run. But we know it wasn't a hit and run because there's literally no evidence of a hit and run. Yeah. The other thing is Paul's name gets thrown out there too. Kind of the same thing, all about this hit and run. And then so about 10 different people mention one of the Murdoch boys. But there's never any follow-up to it and no real leads come out of it. And it essentially goes cold. There's... Nothing is done. There's not even a true, like, open investigation for years. From 2015, his family ended up hiring a lawyer, and they have a very good lawyer right now, and really advocating for him and really getting the story out. One podcast, The Murdoch Murders by Mandy, she talks to Stephen Smith's mother a lot and really continues to beat the drum about Stephen's story because it is still unsolved. But what's interesting is two weeks after the death of Maggie Murdoch and Paul Murdoch, the South Carolina law enforcement, which is, so if anyone listened to anything about this, it's called SLED. And so that's the law enforcement there in South Carolina. They opened the case back up as a homicide. And while the case was lightly investigated, and again, there was at least 10 people who brought up the Murdoch boys, and there's that rumor, the police still had never questioned Either of the Murdoch, which, of course, later when they reopened it, Paul was already gone. But they still have never talked to Buster. This week, the body of Stephen Smith was exhumed. They said that there was something 
in their investigation into what happened to Maggie and Paul that made them decide to reopen the Stephen Smith case. Interesting. Again, have never pulled Buster in. I have a theory, and I'll tell you afterwards. Okay. But Buster did put out an official statement this week, and he said he absolutely has nothing to do with this. He is brokenhearted and still grieving for his mom and his brother and for this life that he's living right now, and his prayers are with the family. So for whatever it's worth, I don't think Buster has anything to do with it. I don't know that there's this like secret love affair between him and Buster. I don't think that matters at this point. No. Like, they were at the very least friends. Like you just lost a friend They of went yours. to school together. That's they, right. They knew each other. That's hard, not. period. You don't need an explanation beyond that. Yeah. For me. Yeah, I don't, I don't think. I think if any Murdoch was involved, it's Alec. I also think that if any Murdoch was having a secret relationship, it's Alec Murdoch. So it's still open. Oh, I'm interested to hear some of your yeah. opinions on that. Yeah. <laughs> I just feel like anybody that watched it, I don't know. It, I think if anyone's in a secret relationship, it's him. Also, if there was something that they found and that's what made inside the Maggie and Paul investigation and that's what made them decide to reopen this case and they still haven't ever pulled in Buster, then that only leads to one other person. Right. That would be... Alec. So everyone else is gone. Because then why would you exhume the body if you were going to say, like, if Paul had something to do with it, for example? Those are my theories. I have no real evidence other than my gut feeling. But that case, still open, still actively investigated. Thoughts, Michael? Any last thoughts? My immediate thought went to, because I'm always searching for motive on this. Like, I think my skew tends to be towards the legal. So... Like, what is your motivation if eventually this is going to be placed on a Murdoch? What is the motivation for having done that? For me, the suspicion that it might have been a relationship between Stephen and Buster seems like the most likely scenario and that dad just decided to take care of it. Purely Michael's opinion. Yeah. But just like from a a man that grew up in a small town as a gay man, they're just... Right, wrong, or otherwise, there are lots of people that don't like you. I have not found that to be as true as I've moved to bigger towns and cities. But just small-town America where they like the world to exist in a certain way, it can just be true. I'm heartbroken for the family. I hope they find answers. Because that's just, it's got to be so frustrating. If it truly was just like a random death, it's not like it makes it better. But that is... It is so much more peaceful. There's so much more resolve to that as a family than knowing that there might have been some sort of hate-filled reason for your loved one having been taken from you too soon. Yeah, and I think that everyone is okay if it has nothing to do with the Murdochs, right? They've had their name. 100%. They just want it solved. And it's gone ignored for eight years now. And that's, honestly, it's just sad. And the whole problem is, the whole reason we're even having this conversation is because this, this family specifically Alec, has been involved in some other shady shit that you're about to tell us about. Right. So it's like the whole reason we're even asking this question is because of this man's really horrific dealings. Yeah. So on to death number two. So the next death. <laughs> number two, friends. Yeah. The next death in the Murdoch circle is the violent accidental death of their longtime housekeeper and their nanny, Gloria Satterfield. So Gloria had been with their family forever, helped raise the boys, 
Which is saying that Maggie was a homemaker, but also had a live-in nanny. Yeah, and, the powers of and the... And ha- ha- yeah. housekeeper. Life uh, of the rich and famous. But they were <laughs> like, boys were very, very close to Gloria, loved her very much. But on February 2nd, 2018, Gloria allegedly tripped over one of the dogs coming up the front brick steps, fell backwards, hit her head violently. So there is a 911 call. I've listened to it a couple times. I debated playing it, but... I don't think it puts Maggie in the best light. When she's calling 911, she's very calm. Hey, my housekeeper has bonked her, fell over, violently hit her head. She's bleeding like we need an ambulance. And the 911 operator is trying to talk to her. And Maggie is like, why are you asking me all of these questions? And she's like, hey, me asking you these questions doesn't slow it down. I'm just trying to gather information and provide. And then she ends up handing the phone over to Paul. And Paul is talking to her a little bit and he's, they're trying to understand, like, is she conscious? And apparently she's awake, but she's mumbling and not making any sense, but has a pretty heavy wound on the back of her head. And so there's a little bit of conjecture about, I, I don't think that either Maggie or Paul, like, tripped her or did anything malicious to her. They were the only ones there at the house, supposedly. I do think truly it's probably an accident that what happened That's not what's suspicious or what's horrible about what happens to Gloria Satterfield. So what is that? So after she goes to the hospital with her injuries, she does pass from her injuries. She just is never able to recover. And my God, I know Alec. Because like, even if that's true, like what an awful way to go. I'm just going to my work. Wait, trip on some (laughs) dogs and that's it's all over. The other thing that's, like, really talked about, too, is, like, how cold Paul and Maggie are on the phone. This is a long time. It's almost as, like, a stranger got hit on the street. And I don't know. 911 calls are hard. We've talked about it a lot, about, like, how do you deal with stress? I would probably be absolutely insane, where you might be more cool, calm, I get hyper-focused. Yeah, that's like, right. trying to talk through the situation, figure out what's happening. So I don't put as much merit into that. Alec talks to the family. She had kids and says, hey, you should sue my homeowner's insurance and I'll help you sue them. And we're going to get some money for this. Seemingly good on Alec. I see your face. (laughs) Seemingly good on Alec. So he talks her family into into it and he sues his insurance company for a little over $4 million. Really? Her family had no idea that this lawsuit had been filed for $4 million. I think it was said at one point that it was going to be for like $500,000. Did they actually see money from it? No. Okay. They haven't. And so he ends up taking it. So this is like the beginning. And again, it's so important. I think the biggest thing that this shows you is that this person had been part of their life for 20 years, like a family member. Not only have you been around her, you've been you've probably watched her kids grow up. We were too poor for hired help. I don't have any of those experience, but literally steals in her last moment to help her family. Literally steals from them. He does tell them that you're gonna get a small claim like five hundred thousand. Well, he pockets the other three point five million dollars. I just like at this point too, like what This isn't even a claim against you. This isn't your money. Right. Right? Like, this isn't them trying to come in and take money from you in this frivolous lawsuit or 
something that I could understand, right? Like something that sometimes people that help people in power try to take advantage of. That's not what's happening here. Right. Like this is literally him not stealing even from them. It's him stealing from the insurance company and then shorting them on a false claim. Yeah. Like it's insurance fraud and then defrauding someone out of the money that you got through insurance fraud. (laughs) Also, like you're a lawyer. Like you ethically. understand. Yeah. My thing is that, again, these You've are not- You've for 20 years. Yeah, these are not strangers that wow. are doing it. We said about Casey Anthony, these are the moments that you see Alec for exactly who they are, who he is. Oh, 100%. And so this is a small piece into the financial crimes that we'll talk about into next week, but it plays into it. $10 million, Carla. Yes. <laughs> we talked about in one of our recent cases, I think it, it was Menendez, the last yeah. one that we did. 15 like million. 15 million. 4 million. Give me $4 million. I do think it's an accident. I think it's probably a stretch for people. I think at this point, like, we're now blaming the Murdochs for everything. No, no, no. But it does seem like there was some shady behavior around it. Like, they they took a tragic situation and instead of thinking, how can we make this as good for everyone as possible? It was, how can we make this work for us? Yeah. Or for Alex specifically, how can I make this work for me? Yes. And, like, it was rumored. So Alec also has a huge drug problem and has a very expensive pill habit. It's rumored that Gloria found drugs or possibly knew of some of the secrets and was pushed. But there's really nothing to prove that. I don't think that is what is in dispute. I think it's important to understand what happened with Gloria Satterfield, not because this accident happened, but because of what Alec did to her family In response to it. What he did to her legacy, it just blows my mind that somebody would treat someone like that, that you loved. I mean, you hate for people to do that to strangers, but like people that you know. That's right. Okay. Here's the last murder before we get to next episode's big murders. The next one is Mallory Beach. As a mom of one teenager, one young adult, this just wrecks me like every time. Just completely. I mean, and really out of all the deaths. This one is the most avoidable. February 23rd, 2019, a group of kids, Paul Murdoch, Anthony Hall, Anthony's girlfriend, Mallory Beach, Anthony's cousin, Connor Cook, and Connor's girlfriend, Miley Altman, along with Paul's girlfriend, Morgan Doty. They all decide to go out. So they had plans to go to an oyster roast on Pocky Island. And anyone from South Carolina, I'm probably butchering that. But the group had graduated high school and they were in their first year of new life. So they're all about 19 years old, maybe maybe 20, but right there in that age group of 19 and 20. All of the friends had decided to meet at Murdoch Island, which is a river property owned by the Murdochs. They decided that they would all go by boat and ride together because, again, it's like inlets, like in and out. And so they can get to downtown through boats. Yeah. And, um, so they decide they're going to ride together. I've never been to an oyster roast, but we have like crawfish boils down here. I so imagine I, something similar. Clam bakes or shrimp yeah. boils. So I, I figure it's probably close to the same. This is a normal Saturday night for young adults full of Snapchatting and drinking. It's really sad to watch through some of the documentaries because there's all these videos of them on the boat that day and that night putting puppy dog tongues on each other's faces and doing all these like Snapchat filters and being this night. carefree moment, especially yeah. knowing what is upcoming. 
it's the most avoidable because of all the drinking and the driving a boat and things like that. And so mm-hmm. many times, like other decisions could have been made. And all of that to say, there are kids, and I know I've been a stupid kid. I'm sure you've been a stupid kid. It's just one of the unfortunate times that you made a decision and just didn't, it wasn't the right one. So they leave for the party around 7 p.m. They spend a few hours at the party. Once everyone is ready to leave, Paul Murdoch demands to drive the boat. It is his boat. And he wants to go to a bar downtown, Buford. This was becoming an issue of dissension among the group. They're getting irritated. They don't want to go to a bar. They want to go home. But Paul is driving and because they don't have any cars with them. So they all get back on the boat and they start to drive to downtown Buford through the boat. And they end up at a bar. And you can see that only Paul and Connor go inside and they do a couple of rounds of shots. And the rest of their group goes out. It's sad because there are video cameras everywhere these days. But there's video camera footage of them gassing up the boat, buying beer at the gas station before they even decide to go out, like early in the day. Then when they pull up at the bar, they're getting off the boat. They're hugging on each other, kissing on each other. A couple of the couples, the two go in and Mm -hmm. use fake IDs and take shots. And then you can see them all gather back up. And get back into the boat. And at this point, Paul Murdoch is extremely drunk. He's becoming very agitated. He's actually turning into what they called his like evil side. They had a nickname for it called Timmy. They said his hands would do kind of something erratic. And he's becoming very aggressive and really loud. His best friend, Anthony, is trying to tell him, dude, let me drive your boat. And he's like, no one else is going to drive this boat but me. And so they head off. They get back in the boat. I know we probably don't have a ton of teenagers listening, but don't get on the boat. Don't Don't get get on on the the boat. boat. We tell people, if somebody tries to get you, don't go to another location. Don't get on the boat. Call your parents. Call an Uber. Stay the night outside on the dock. Same thing with the driver, too. You have any inkling this person is not capable of getting me home safely. I promise whatever half hour you're going to waste is going to be worth it. They get to the bar around 12.45 a.m. just for time reference. About 15 minutes later, you know, they do two rounds of shot. Yeah. They're returning to the boat. And really, like, God. this begins, like, where their lives will forever be changed at this moment. And Paul is driving very aggressively. He's acting belligerent. They're starting to fight with one another. And at some point, Paul even slaps his girlfriend in front of everybody, the GPS and the Garmin, they can see that the boat is starting to increase in speed. And so then they bec- they're they moving at a lot faster speed through the water. With an agitated, drunk person. Neat. In the dark. Perfect. Yeah. This is, this is perfect. Yeah. It's honestly like one of, some of the reasons I don't like to get on a boat in the darkness because just stuff like this happens. A lot of people drink when they boat. It's a motor vehicle. Like it has dangers. In some ways, a lot more dangerous. Yeah, grew up on this Your water. Blacktop is not going to randomly form a wave in it. But your river or your lake or your ocean that you're driving on just might mm-hmm. in your high-speed boat. Red flags. The boat riders even asked Paul to, like, let them off the boat, but he just refuses. Somewhere around 2 a.m., so about an hour after I had left, it's a good distance for them to ride they would crash into the archers creek bridge they actually hit a pylon oh my god mallory beach was injected from the boat the kids were injured one had a broken jaw of course they were honestly they're all lucky to be alive the boat has this huge piece of it missing 
it was a pretty destructive accident. They all come up and realize that Mallory is gone. I also won't play the 911 tape, though I debated it. Connor, who has his jaw broken, is calling 911 and he's trying like to urgently tell them like what happened. And in the background, you can hear Mallory's best friend, Miley, screaming in the background, like screaming and crying hysterical. Mm -hmm. So it's a really upsetting 911 call. That's really the main reason. But if you want to listen to it, it's all over YouTube. It's horrifying that they're realizing like they cannot find their friend. It's in the dark. It's 2 a.m. And guess what? Paul Murdoch is still drunk and belligerent. And so the first responders get there. They begin to search the water, assess the situation. And thanks to like dash cam videos, there's a ton of videos on this. The first officer begins to talk to the teenagers about what happened. Mallory's boyfriend, Anthony, who is very upset, looking for his girlfriend. He actually lunges at Paul a few times and you can see it all happening. He says that like Paul was smiling and that he was going to knock the smile off of them. They become pretty violent and have to be taken away by the police officers. The ambulance get there. The kids begin calling their family members, which I'm sure is some of the hardest phone calls they've made. And actually, Anthony has to tell his parents that they need to call Mallory's parents and they need to get here. I can't even imagine what even thinking about it chokes me up of what it must have been like to arrive on that scene, knowing that your daughter's been missing in the water for an hour now oh, yeah they do take the other kids to the hospital because they're injured they have some not life-threatening injuries but they do have some injuries that need to be handled interesting enough paul murdoch his first call is to his grandfather and not his father and i think that like lays out that the grandfather is the one who is in control do we know the content of that call No, there are some like speculations about it. The actions made from the Murdoch start that night start to tell you that they are in problem solving mode. In cleanup mode. Mm -hmm. And that's why you- That's where my question was going. It was like, are you in like grieving mode or are you in let's clean this shit up mode? They were in let's clean this shit up mode. Yes. And Anthony actually says to one of the police officers, you know, that's a Murdoch, right? He's never going to get in trouble for this. From the moment of the crash, Anthony knows that he, because he's like his best friend, Paul's best friend, and has been for a long time. But also Mallory was his longtime girlfriend, like the love of his life. And so now he's realized that my girlfriend could be dead and- This guy's going to go off This guy's going to get off and nothing's going to happen. They get to the hospital and a couple hours later, they test his blood alcohol. It is 0.24. Oh my God. 25%, like one quarter of his blood is alcohol. That is three times the legal limit three times. for an adult. So underage, it's zero. If you're underage, there is no legal limit because it's not legal. But for an adult over 21, it's normally in most states. 0.08. 0.08. Some super conservative states are 0.06. Yeah. And so if you think too, now it's been a few hours, you're not going to sober up a lot at the level that he was drinking at in a couple of hours. Cause I think there's been a lot of conversations about like, why didn't they test his blood immediately? Well, they did within a few hours. They're probably assessing to make sure he doesn't have any damages. He might have lost a little bit in an hour yeah. or two, but like the point is he was really drunk. Right. It doesn't matter, at least not in the eyes of the law. It doesn't matter if you're 0.09 or 0.2. Like, you're drunk. Beyond the level of intoxication that we've decided is appropriate for you to be operating 
a very powerful motor vehicle. Right. Paul's father, grandfather, and uncle show up to the hospital along with the other kids' family that are there. Now, Anthony refuses to leave the scene until they find Mallory. Him and his family are there on the scene. Mallory's family show up to the scene there. So they're still there at the boat crash. Connor, (laughs) Miley, and Morgan, along with Paul Murdoch, are all at the hospital. Okay. So did stay with them. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the Murdoch family arrives and they immediately are seen on the hospital camera going room to room on their phones and begin to start doing damage call control. Immediately, there is a story that comes out that Connor was the one that was driving the boat. And they're telling Connor's family, don't worry about it. We got this. We're going to take care of this. Don't worry about it. And never once really show any concern or anything about the fact that there's a young girl who is still missing in the water and hasn't been found. Which at this point means, because it's in the water, like in all likelihood she's dead. Even though we don't know that to true yet. In all likelihood, that's what that means. Right, you know with every passing minute, that is this scenario that's happening. The other thing is that as a parent... Don't you think that you would be in the room where your child is who is belligerent and he's so banged up? But wouldn't that be the first place that you go is to sit with your child while they're, I mean, honestly, I'd probably come in the hospital and beat the shit out of my kid because I would be so angry and then so relieved that they were okay. Yes. March 3rd, 2019, so about eight days later, they find Mallory's body to volunteers, which also, God bless the people who get in water in search and rescue. But they find about five miles from the crash scene. And I want to note that even though Paul Murdoch was three times the legal limit, belligerent on the scene, and caused a death along with many in- other injuries to the people that was there, the bodily injury alone. Right. Continue. Sorry. I'm just like, what the? Michael, he was not arrested. Broken jaws. Like, he was what? Never arrested. Not arrested. They did not arrest him that night. They did not arrest him the next day. They did not even arrest him the next week. Listeners, this is my what the fuck <laughs> face. <laughs> I think it, like this is part of in that foundation of what that family meant there is the fact that it took all the way till April. And I'm going to tell you why they ended up arresting him. Mallory's family were not a family to sit still and look pretty. They were coming with vengeance. And they wanted someone to stand accountable for what had happened to their daughter. By the way, hashtag same. I would be the same thing. Like, okay, I've got nothing to lose. Right. I've already lost my child. This person, that I, this soul that I love, It is far more important than whatever reputational damage you think you're going to do to me, little powerful family. Let's play. Like, let me tell you what, I would be exactly like this family is being like, let's tango. They hired hired a really good lawyer who was not scared of the Murdochs at all. I bet they had lawyers lining up at this point to be like, let me. Yeah, I think is the reason that we know what happened to the Murdochs. Like to Maggie and Paul in the future, that lawyer started to put such pressure on the Murdoch family that this really all started to fall apart. Mallory's family, they really wanted justice as they should for their child. And so in April 18th, so over a month and a half later, 
he is finally indicted, but did not spend one night in jail. He is released on bond awaiting the trial. Also, April 18th, that was Mallory's like 20th birthday. For her parents, it was some type of like vindication that like, okay, he had officially been charged. He might be out on bail, but he has officially been charged. If this is anybody else, they're holding us. I just can't even believe that he was out on bail for this. I think some of that all comes down to the amount of money that you have to yes. give to that situation, right? And the, the positioning of it, like it just abusive power like so much of the no one is above the law i have so many feelings about this like just because you are this rich and powerful family like the justice system is designed to hold that family just as accountable as they would hold me and you yeah right like ultimately this should not depend on how expensive a lawyer you can afford it should depend on let's follow the evidence and see where it goes. Yep. I completely, completely agree. Of course, Paul Murdoch pleads not guilty. Of course he does. And so I think the other thing that's important is remember, this is in April of 2019. Well, what hits us in March of 2020? The pandemic. That's right. COVID. There are a lot of delays in this trial. One thing that the prosecutors talk about that I didn't realize is that Everything went to Zoom. All sorts of trials and things went to Zoom. But actual criminal trials, they had a really hard time. There are some legal rules and rights that we have that say we have to do this in person. A lot of those criminal cases got pushed out years because of it. I didn't know that. I, thought I didn't they were, realize that either. Mm, I yeah. thought they were doing it on Zoom. So what's important here, too, is that Mallory's family not only wanted criminal charges, they were going to come for the money. So they sue for wrongful death, and they sue all the Murdochs. Because to them, they were like, hey, Maggie and Alec allowed their children to drink, and they provided alcohols to the group, and they provided Literally an Literally went to this family's island. Yeah. They provided an environment that this type of stuff could happen from. 100%. going to sue all of them. When they do that, the lawyers are asking for financial documents. And this is what leads to the mounting pressure that Alec is under as we move into what happens to Paul and Maggie. Mallory's family sues. Actually, Connor Cook's family also sues a lawsuit because he tried to frame him for driving the boat that night, even though there's clear evidence that Paul was at the wheel of the boat when they left the marina. These huge financial scams are happening in the background. And when these lawyers start asking for these financial documents, it's all starting to like this little this little ball that's rolling down the hill is now this huge avalanche that is coming right at Alec Murdoch. Yeah. If we put all of these little pieces in our mind together, and then in our next episode as we start to talk about what happened to Paul and Maggie, I think this will make a lot more sense. And I just want to say, Paul in this one moment in his life was a complete asshole. And he probably had many moments in his life that he was a complete 19-year-old. Especially grew growing up as a super privileged kid, Right. right. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that I think that he agree, you know, deserved anything that happened that night. Like 
by no means. I think that he should have been held legally responsible. I don't think that him dying was like true justification for Mallory. And I don't feel like her family does either. I want to throw that out there that this doesn't justify what happened to Paul. And we're only talking about one moment in Paul's life. We don't know what happened with Paul between 2019 and the day that he passed. And what did he learn from anything? Was he the same 20, 21-year-old butthead that he was in 2019? We also don't know what kind of man he might have grown into and how this moment in his life could have forever changed him and he would go off to do like wonderful things. It's great to be like, okay, you were super shithead in that moment, but also to know that one moment is not your whole life. I think what we also know from other cases that we've covered in the past is that we never know what the environment behind the scenes looked like. Right. I don't know, and I don't know that we still know to this day, what kind of behind the scenes pressure, influence was put on a Paul. Mm -hmm. What kind of pressure that he lived under on a daily basis that pushes one to these kinds of irresponsible behaviors. I'm not sure. And that's not me trying to defend him. That's just me saying that like, We've seen plenty of other cases where you have super controlling patriarchal figure like this, right? Yeah. That all of a sudden, through years and years of conditioning, is convincing you that certain activities that are not okay right. are okay. And that somehow you're above them, especially in this position where they are in some ways very much above the law because they are the law. Yes. I'm not sympathetic to Paul. I'm trying not to get to that space. But yeah. there's a part of me that is leaning towards that of just like, he's not his father. And all of a sudden he's being because of the asshat that his father, we've come to find out, is as a human being. All of this is also being laid at the entire family's feet. And I'm not sure that that's a fair representation of who they actually are. Right. I I agree. So I want to say something about Mallory. She was a beautiful, smart, talented young lady who really did have, like Stephen Smith, like a world of life ahead of both of them. Her parents in the documentary, they're lovely and you can see how much, like, how much her family loved. And there was a thing about, oh, did Mallory's family come and kill Paul and Maggie? And her dad was like, no. Dear God. I'm very upset. He was like, but no, I wouldn't do that. They both spoke beautifully and really have continued to advocate. Like, like Sandy Smith, how Steven's mom too, have continued to advocate for her. But they have a nonprofit for her, so I just want to call it out. It's called Mal's Pals, and that's P-A-L-Z, which is raising money to build a brand new animal shelter. She was a huge animal lover there in Hampton County, South Carolina. So if you're looking for a nonprofit to give to and you love animals like we do, that, that could be a good one. So, Michael, this kind of takes us, this is all the background <sighs> leading into this June night. I think it's actually June 19th or some night in June where Maggie and Paul would be shot at their home. And the surmounting pressure, that's pressure cooking for Alec. For me, like, no one is above the law. I don't care what position you're in, that part of being in a society, part of being in a union that we are in, is all of us collectively as people deciding upon some rules and saying that this is what we're going to call law. It's not perfect. It gets really ugly and muddled sometimes. But by and large, we've come a long fucking way. Yeah. 
I don't care what your position is. Your positions in this system were designed to uphold the law, not to make yourself immune from it. Yep. There's a part of me that's just like, you, you hear these really corny phrases like absolute power corrupts absolutely. And you almost think, oh, it's just a thing that people say, but this is just such an example already. And we're not even into the super ugly stuff yet. That this is an example of a man that just made the decision at some point. And you're still making the decision that I'm above these things. These rules, they don't apply to me. Yes, they do. We have laws that are here to protect everyone. And so there's a part of me that's just is heartbroken by what part of this family is about to go through because we know so much about this case. All because of one man's desire to abscond from the law. Yeah. To decide that I am above it. To decide that there is nothing that can't be remedied by me just snapping my fingers and calling some friends in high places and making it turn around. It just, he was playing with life at this point. Life yeah. and death. All to whatever excuses he came up with. It's not good enough. And can live with some sense of idea that if someone does something wrong against us or other people that we love, that there is justice that can be pursued from that. This is, to me, what makes people so angry at the rich and powerful, right? It's not actually because you're rich. I'm heartbroken by some of these tragedies already that maybe aren't overt crimes, some of them, yeah. right? Like, falling down the stairs, not overt crime. What you do with it, your character that you portray as a person that has the responsibility of power and wealth thrust upon you. I don't know. I think too <laughs> like, that like before- Come on, Alec. Get, yeah. Do it better. Before <laughs> right. Alec was arrested, I think I thought, and we'll dive into this more, but I thought like, how unlucky could one family be? You have had all these things happen to you. Your housekeeper dies at your house. Your son is in a DUI boating accident, ends up killing one of his friends. And now your son and wife are shot on your property. At some point, you have to say, wow, did he really get this, dealt this really horrible hand? Or like, did you have something to do with it? When we, do you remember some of your commentary on the Peterson case? Yeah. Talking about that. You are like, either guilty defense, or you are the unluckiest fuck on this planet. There's a certain amount of that for that that for Alex starts to ring true. Either you maybe have more of a hand to play in all of these things than you're letting on. Right. Or you're just really fucking unlucky. And I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, so next episode, Maggie, Paul, we're going to get into Alex's uh, money scams. But also, Alec put a hit on himself. And there's also an attempting attempted shooting in there as well i just it just gets better like you couldn't have written this i know why there's it feels like a hot like it yeah. feels like a tv show i know why <laughs> and i'm like not making light about anything no, about awful. but like you could not have written this it's so wild and it's why so many people are like have you seen what's happening over there in yes. south carolina <laughs> like for once it's not florida that's what <laughs> So. Don't worry, there are plenty of other crazy cases, which I'm sure we will get to yeah. in time. So. 100%. So listen, we will see you guys back in a couple of weeks. I hope you guys get to spend some time maybe with your families this weekend or doing your thing or 
living life like Michael's living, living your best life. Um, And even if you're not a big like Easter person, like even if you're just celebrating the spring solstice or whatever, like whatever your flavor is, happy spring. Welcome into the season. I wish you lots and lots of love with your family and your loved ones, whatever that looks like. And we're getting ready to like get into part two, which I think is the more salacious. So please tune into part two of this Murdoch story. We want to hear if there are some little tidbits that we didn't hit on, please let us know. You can do that on our socials at NosyBees on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to email us old school styles, you can do that at NosyBeesForLife at gmail.com. That's N-O-S-E-Y-B-E-E-S, the number four, L-I-F-E at gmail.com. All right, friends, we're out. Until next time. Hey, you made it to the end of the podcast. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. And I know that we've given a lot of our unsolicited feedback, but at the end of the day, it's also important that we remember to stay kind, stay curious, but of course, stay nosy, bitches. bitches.